Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to My Millennial Career. My name is Shelley Johnson. I'm a HR consultant at Boldside, where I help leaders build epic team cultures. If you want to invest in your team, you want to run a leadership workshop, you want to run an in-house culture workshop because you want to get your team aligned and on the same page and hitting big goals, DM me on LinkedIn and let's chat about how we can work together. Today on the show, I'm joined by Tim Duggan, who is an author advisor and optimist, and he believes in the power of business to do good. This was just the most amazing conversation. I got off the podcast episode and was like bouncing around with all this energy. And I think that's part of what Tim does. He brings energy into a conversation. He helps you to think about things really differently and see the world from multiple perspectives. And his insight into the world of work is just so needed right now. And Tim has founded multiple digital media ventures. Most known of that would be Junkie Media, a leading publisher for young Australians. And he's written a few books and he's writing his third at the moment. He wrote the book Cult Status and Killer Thinking. And his new book is coming out early next year, which you're going to hear a little bit about today. Today, we dig into some of the big challenges that people experience at work and look at ways that we can solve those. And Tim explores this idea of happiness and the link between happiness and work. And he shares his research into the four-day work week. And if you don't know what the four-day work week is, basically it's shortening the work week to four days and moving from a 40-hour kind of traditional work week to a 32-hour work week where you get one day off a week, but your pay doesn't reduce. And the idea behind the four-day work week is that happiness, satisfaction, engagement, productivity, all of that increase, and you get the day off. And so he goes into what we're seeing in the world in terms of research. And yeah, you're just going to love this conversation. He talks about creativity. We talk about how to bring a different style of thinking to work. Anyway, I'm going to stop because I just, I'm so pumped. I can't wait. You just have to listen from start to finish because he finishes this conversation with his best ever career advice. You are not going to want to miss that. Let's do it. Tim, welcome to the show. It's great to have you hanging out with us. Thank you very much, Shelley. It is wonderful to be here. And when you say here, I'd love to know where is here because you're kind of gallivanting all over the world. And so where are you today? Yeah, I'm coming to you live from Helsinki in Finland today, which is a wonderful city in an amazing country that um, we've been fortunate enough to be exploring, traveling around for the last few weeks. And one of the reasons that I'm here is I'm writing my new book at the moment, which is on the very large, very knotty topic of the future of work. And so I've come to Finland because Finland is consistently ranked by the World Happiness Index as the number one happiest country in the world. 
And so I've been spending some time with experts. I was at Alto University yesterday with a philosopher and I spent time with several researchers who are, uh, who are trying to help me unpack why Finland consistently ranks as the number one happiest country in the world and to talk through some just, you know, big topics around the future of work, as well as having a sauna every single day, which is one <laughs> of the benefits of being in Finland. I love that. I, I am jealous of the sauna vibes, but also what you're getting to learn over the last few years, because you've been researching for this book for a long time, right? Yeah, it's been about two years that I've been exploring this concept. And it's been about three years since I left full-time work. And in that time, I jumped into a camper van for six months and explored Australia and did a lot of thinking there. And then I moved overseas about 18 months ago with my husband, who is Scottish, to be closer to his family in Scotland um, for a while. But we're not living in Scotland. We live in the Spanish island of Mallorca. And as part of that, we're using that as a base to explore Europe. And I'm trying to really answer a question at the moment, which is at the heart of my new book that's going to come out in April next year. And the question is that everywhere I look around at the moment and all the stats coming through, the way that we're working seems to be broken. And it's broken in lots of different ways. And I'm trying to figure out how can we fix it? How can we solve how and why we work to take advantage of this phenomenal once in a generation's opportunity that we have right now to rethink how we work. When you say work is broken, what do you think the things are that indicate that work is broken? It's a great question. And that is something that I've spent the last two years trying to get to the at the bottom of. And in almost every industry that I've studied, there's been increasing pressures, increasing demands, probably less direction as well around, around where it's going. And it depends on which industry you're in, but what is a single impact that I'm seeing across all different generations, across all different industries, is it's having three major effects on how we're living as as a society. The first one is that we are overworked. We are working too much. We are working too hard. COVID has not been one of the great saviours of this. It has certainly shown us a way that we can work better but at the moment, we are still working harder than we did you know, on, the, on a general sense. And this is data that's come through from Microsoft who tracked how often people were using Teams and how long meetings were going, going for and found out there's an average of 46 minutes in the day that we're working since, since pre-COVID levels. So we're working too much. The second effect of that is that we are relatively unengaged with what we're doing. So the majority of people are still unengaged at work, not finding lots of meaning at work. And I know that's a topic that um, is of particular interest to you and your podcast and your book. Um, And the third one is that all of this is having this effect that is making us more apprehensive and anxious about the future. So AI is coming, AI is here, what's it going to do to our jobs, as well as, and that's just going on top of other general anxieties in our society, things like climate anxiety, things like um, apprehension of the future, things like inequality growing. And all of these things are coming together and essentially meaning that the way that we're working at the moment is broken. It is having a negative detrimental impact on lots of people and how can you fix it? And that's what I'm exploring. Hence why part of the reason I'm in Finland, speaking to people who are very happy with their lives. However, it must be said that they're less happy and more content, more satisfied, more happy with the lot that they have rather than 
you know, running around with maniacal grins on their faces, you know, as giant optimists. They're just satisfied with having enough. And that's a really interesting area I'm exploring. So that the difference between the feeling of happiness versus content. Yeah. So it's interesting that there's uh, the study is actually called the World Happiness Index and it's been going through the last 10 years. And Finland has come out for the last six years as the number one top of this. But it's actually based around one question. And the question actually is semi-related to happiness. But the question is, how satisfied are you with your life right now? And you have to give an answer between zero to 10 on how satisfied you are with your life. And Finland comes out the top. I think the average is somewhere between seven and eight in Finland compared to somewhere in Afghanistan where the average is two to three. Uh, and they're the, the top and the, and the bottom countries. So Finland comes out as the most satisfied with their life. The way that gets PR'd to the world is that they're the happiest country, but there's actually a big difference between happiness and satisfaction. And satisfaction with your life is based on so many different aspects. It's based on where you expect your life to be and how much is enough for you. And um, as well as things like institutions, um, so welfare and university and how well they are able to support you if you want to change um, your career at 40 or if you want to leave a job that you hate and go into unemployment benefits, because the institutions are so strong here in Finland, it means that there's a real satisfaction with their life because they know they've got something to fall back on. Wow. I mean, it's really interesting hearing you say that and, and articulating the difference between happiness and satisfaction or contentment with life. How much of, <laughs> and this is probably a big part of what you're uncovering with your book, but how much of work like how much does work relate to how content we are in life? Because I think about my own working habits and like how, how work for me for the last however many years, 10 plus years has been such a huge focus in my life. But I can't really like kind of pinpoint how much weight do I give to that huge thing as to how happy I feel? Like is that something that you're uncovering about the link between how do we feel at work versus how happy do we feel in our life? Yeah, they're, and they're hugely interrelated. And I think the days of compartmentalizing and thinking that I can not be happy at work and then all of a sudden switch on and be happy from, you know, in the evenings just doesn't work anymore. Um, work and life are so interconnected that it generally the research is showing that if you're happy at work, you're going to happy in, in life. One of the people I spoke to yesterday was a um, philosopher from Alto University. And I went to visit him in, um, in Helsinki and went into his office and he's sitting there and he's a philosopher who looks at the meaning of life. That's his main area of interest. And we started all talking about the meaning of life and the way that he approaches it is he doesn't think of the meaning of life because that's a very, it's a hard question for anyone to answer. Instead, he thinks about meaning in life and meaning in life for him is his answer to that is that you get meaning in life from being meaningful to other people. That's all about your, your relationships and all about how you interact. And so the question I had to him was, that's amazing. How can we apply that to work? How do you get meaning at work? And he said, it's the exact same. There's no difference between meaning in life and meaning at work. It's all about the relationships you have. It's all about who you interact with, how you get benefit from them, how they get benefit from you. So I think it's quite interesting that one of the things that my eyes have been open to is that researchers tend to work in silos. 
So organizational researchers will look at how this affects you at work and then meaning in life researchers will look at how this affects you in life. And what this philosopher from the university yesterday was telling me was that there's actually a huge crossover between all of those outcomes, all the research, because you can't actually delineate between what work is and what life is. It's all the same thing. I love this conversation already so much. And if everyone saw me, they'd see me like nodding away and like, just that idea of meaning, not the meaning of work, but meaning in work. Like, I, I think that's a mindset shift for me just hearing you say, okay, well, how do I find meaning in in my work? How do I find that sense of meaning? And I think there's the role of the organisation in, in, in helping you to uncover that. But as individuals, we can have, we have agency to uncover that sense of meaning. Like, I think we have more agency sometimes than we give ourselves credit for. And I find this often happens when you're in a workplace and maybe the culture is not toxic, but maybe it's just a bit mediocre. <laughs> so it's just like average. And, and it's like, it's not like great, but it's not terrible. And we kind of are just feeling blah about work. We go in and we're like, it's so like whatever. But if we have this lens of what do I, how do I derive meaning and value in this environment? I do think that can shape the feeling that we get when we go there and the level, I love how you talk to that feeling of disengagement. But if we connect meaning and we find meaning in the work that we're doing, we can increase our engagement levels. Like, and I'm not, like, I'm not downplaying the fact that the organisation has to play a role here. But I do think individuals have more agency over their satisfaction at work. But what's your take on that? Is that something you're seeing or am I completely off? Because obviously I'm not doing the research on it. I'm just hypothesising here. Yeah, no, I think I think there's two elements of this. And one is that there is amazing agency in thinking through I am responsible in some level for what meaning I can find here. And I think as soon as you realise that, according to this philosopher I spoke to, meaning comes from your relationships relationships with other people and how much meaning you can give to somebody else is how much meaning you get back. As soon as you realise that, you can concentrate on your relationships with your colleagues, with your boss, with your mentees, um, with anyone at work, with your customers, with your clients. Um, as soon as you realise that part of it can be controlled, I think is really amazing. But the other side of it is I spoke to an amazing researcher called Dr. Michael Leitner, and he is one of the co-authors of a thing called the Maslach Burnout in- Inventory, which he wrote with Dr. Christina Ma- Ma- Maslach. And she is the person who created a thing called the Burnout Inventory, which is a way of looking now to see at what scale someone is at the levels of burnout. And the way that he was talking about burnout in organisations was he often uses the analogy of a canary in a coal mine. And if there's a canary in a coal mine that, you know, starts to get sick, we don't go to the canary and say, you need a day off. You should take a, take a weekend off. We look at the coal mine and say, what's wrong with this coal mine? And he applies that to things like burnout and things like, you know, uh, other big problems like that. And sometimes, and I've been guilty of this myself, we look and try and think, of it as an employee problem. How can we help that employee instead of thinking of it as entire workplace question of how can we look at the entire coal mine and figure out what is in there that's making the canary sick? That's such a good call out. And I think we go towards the individual view because we can control ourselves. 
like we have this level of, well, I can't control uh, what's happening in this organisation, but I can control myself. But you're absolutely right. There's some problems that are systemic problems that the organisation needs to change and sort out. And I guess we have to assess their willingness sometimes to even resolve that because if they're unwilling to re- to resolve those systemic problems, like burnout, for example, if they're unwilling to think about how do they help their worker, their employees' well-being, well then, that may not be an environment that people should stay in because if if they don't care about their employees' well-being, well, it's probably not a good work environment to to show up in in general. I'd want to touch on this thing of of burnout because I think. When you were sharing the big themes that you see, the big problems with how work is broken, for me, the one that really stands out to me right now that I think is very acute, it's an acute pain point, is that feeling of overworked, like being overworked. What do you feel like are some of the, and I know it's still early early days and we'll find out more when your book comes out in April, but what might be some of the solutions to that? Because it's such a challenge for so many people and that there's such a pressure. I know Australia is really high on the burnout rating globally. And so what can, what can we do about this dynamic of being overworked? Yeah, there, there was one stage when I was doing research for this book when I just had to stop looking up statistics around overwork and around research and reading reports because it's overwhelming. It really is overwhelming and it's not just in Australia. It is culturally all around the world. I was looking a lot at Asia, looking at China, looking at Japan, looking at India. There's burnout and overwork is a global problem and the effect it's having. So the World Health Organization attributed something like three quarters of a million deaths to overwork through to heart disease and complications like that from people working too hard. Um, That was in the past year. So there's having this really negative effect on us. And part of the reason why I'm writing this book right now is because I feel that COVID gave us for the first time potentially one of the antidotes to overwork. And that was that we had a chance, obviously COVID was a terrible time for lots of people, but we had a chance to rethink the role that work plays in our life. So for the first time, once knowledge workers, and this is not everyone because a lot of workers still had to go into places of work where they couldn't stay at home, but particularly for people who could stay at home, they for the first time were able to see what a proper life-work balance actually looked like. They were able to go pick the kids up from school. If the kids were going to school, maybe they were teaching the kids school at home. Um, They were able to clock off work early. Uh, They were able to not commute for two hours to get to work and, and home from work. And there was this kind of glimpse into what happens to our society if we reprioritize the role the work plays. So we don't think of our life work first and think of our life life first, think of our life um, in, in another order. And so that I think is our best opportunity at the moment as we're coming back into readjusting to a world that is hybrid, to a world that has a power dynamic push and pull from employers to employees around where you should work and how you should work. I really think that there's an opportunity and most of the experts I spoke to were about half split on this around where this is going to end up. Are employers 
going to win and say, you need to come back into an office five days a week, this is where you work, or are employees going to be the ones saying, no, we have discovered that life is more important than just working hard. And that's this fascinating power shift that's going to take place over the next decade. What do you think is going to happen? <laughs> Great question. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm an optimist and I like to think that there's this opportunity if we take advantage of it to deprioritize work in our lives. That's, I think, the solution that has to happen. I think we need to work hard when we're at work and learn how to take advantage of all of these tools that we have from hybrid work to remote working to mid-career breaks, all these kind of things that we have at our disposal. And if enough people take advantage of them and use them and it becomes normalised to take six months off once you've been working for 10 years and then rejoin the workforce and not have to explain what you're doing, if enough people take advantage of all these tools that we've got right now, I have faith that the power shift will continue to be in the hands of employees. I've found it a real challenge over the last little while because I fully I work remote full time and since COVID have done that and I just could not imagine and it's a privilege right to be able to work remotely so I, I want to acknowledge that I could not imagine being asked to go back into the office however many days like I, I find it really like wait 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 we just we just for the last however many years have done this and it's worked really well. Like it's worked really well. We've, we, we're, we're happier, we're more productive, we get less interruptions. Like, and I, I'm just, I was quite discouraged the other week when I, oh, it was a little while ago when the big banks were getting everyone back in <laughs> and I, someone posted on LinkedIn, Tim, this post of like the big banks saying that all of their customers have to bank online, but then all their employees have to come back in person. <laughs> It's just the irony of like being like, why do we feel this pressure to to snap back to those old ways? Like, I don't know if you have an uh, have um, what, like I'd love to know your take on it because it baffles me. I'm, I'm just like I don't get it. Like, I get we need in person connection. I absolutely love in person time. I just don't think we need to have an arbitrary rule that everyone needs to be in the office 60% of the working week. Because I think, what, what's that about? Like, is that about control or is that about a lack of leadership skill where they don't know how to set goals? Like, what's your take? Yeah, it's, it's a whole new world learning how to run an organisation, lead an organisation that's hybrid. And I know that that's something that you help people with, your skills, and you train people how to, how to do things like that. And I think whenever... An announcement like that comes out, I always look to who is making it, who is at the top of that organization making those decisions. And generally, it is an older generation. Generally, it's more traditional um, ways of thinking because, and I don't blame them. If, if you uh, got to 60 or you're in your 50s and you have worked for 20, 30, 35 years in one particular way, 18 months of working differently might not be enough in order to change how you think about work. Whereas if you um, are relatively new to the workforce or more open to changes and to adaptability and you have adapted to these new ways of working, you see the benefits firsthand. Because, Shell, you know what it's like in your life to be able to go and 
do stuff and then pop into a recording studio for two hours and record a podcast and then go back to life and go shopping and see your kids or hang out with, you know, go swimming, do whatever you're going to want to do. <laughs> so I think I, I think I always look at who is making that decision. I also think that it does seem like it's potentially going to be industry-based, I think, the, the, the future, the, the future of work does feel like there'll be certain industries that will be easier to 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 do remote work from and other industries where culturally they'll snap back to what it was. But I don't think it will ever snap completely back to what it was. I think we've seen the light. There has been enough of us now to know what's on the other side of the curtain to ever go back to to the way that it was before. I just can't imagine like I can't fathom, I can't even go back in my mind to like when I would, I'd wake up in the morning, I'd drop my daughter Sunny to daycare. This is before I had my uh, second baby Bowie. I'd drop her to daycare at seven in the morning, drive the 45 plus minutes to work, work there, get home, wouldn't get home till pick her up till 6.30 at night. And like I know there's heaps of people out there who, who there's nurses, there's there's people in essential industries doing that now. So I want to, again, I want to acknowledge that there's people who have that, that challenge right now. But for, I think for me, after go, working remotely and seeing that your life can blend with work much more seamlessly than the hard and fast, like commute five days a week and you, you, you're in the office and then you're on and then you go home and you still work at night, like all those things like to me, it just, it just didn't work. And I think that feeling of overwork, the feeling of anxiety and feeling disengaged in what you're doing was so prevalent. So to me, I, I love how remote work has been this catalyst. And I think there's other things that are coming that I know you're very interested in, like the four-day work week and these kind of new ways of just taking off these old mindsets and thinking about it's not about hours. Like it's not about hours, it's about how someone has an impact and how they deliver and show up. Anyway, that's a little bit of an, a tangent and a rant, but I don't know. Like, no, what? it's 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 <laughs> Shelley. You you're, you're speaking my language. <laughs> you're speaking the truth as well. I, I think one of the most interesting findings from studying the four day work week for the last few years and speaking to people like Andrew Barnes, who was um, the founder of the four day. Uh, we global movement and one of the, the, the people who's really been credited with his partner, Charlotte Lockhart, with really pushing the four-day week globally and doing thousands of studies around the world, is that almost every business that has done a four-day work week trial, so whether it be three months, six months or one year, continues to do it. So I think it's something like 90% of the businesses that, that go to four-day work week never go back from there. And that tells you something. N- name another experiment where once people do it, they realize their employees are happier. Productivity hasn't gone down. There's the kind of parts of the day that are, that, you know, are fluid that kind of get squeezed out a little bit without too much detriment to culture or too much detriment to productivity. And people just get shit done in four days. And I think that's extraordinary. We're, we're witnessing live at the moment over this next decade the biggest shift in the way that we work in 100 years. And that is phenomenal to be a part of. I, I didn't realise it was such a high hit rate and success rate. I'm amazed by that because that is such a mindset shift like for, for businesses to go and even to think about 
just all the coordination that has to go into for a large business to to move towards four-day work week where the impact to their customers, they have to think about so many different elements, but the outcome is they're more productive, they're happier, the results improve, like just... it's just such a positive thing to hear. Do you feel like more organisations are going to be open to moving towards a four-day work week? Yeah, it's still the pointy end. It's still the very pointy end of of progressive organisations and it's still, there's a lot of smaller organisations where it's easier to do. The real change will be when, not if, when big companies that have hundreds of thousands of employees start doing that. So an example is Unilever in Australia running a four-day workweek trial. Um, Unilever around the world has 400,000 staff or something, you know, some large incomprehensible number of people they look after. And I think once you start seeing bigger companies like that that have real impact in um, when they make changes, all of a sudden if you are a graduate and you're looking at two companies and you've got one company that does four-day work week, another company that does five days a week, which one are you initially going to be attracted towards? And I think it will start becoming a competitive edge, and that's when I think the dominoes will really start falling. And I'm a firm believer that everyone should move to a four-day work week. All of the research, everything I've seen around it, there's almost no downsides that I have seen. And I think that's – I keep trying to – ask companies that have done it and try to figure it out, um, you know, what's what's wrong with this? And it just feels like this is the right moment to change the way that we've worked for the last 100 years plus to change it to a way that's beneficial to our society, to us as humans, to our relationships, to the meaning in our life, to the meaning at work, all of this. I cannot wait till your book comes out because I think you're right. We're at this like moment in time where something needs to shift. We've got all these problems at work and I think, you know, what I've been thinking heaps about Tim lately because my oldest is in school. She just started kinder this year and I think teachers should have a four-day work week. I think teachers have one of the toughest jobs in our, like, environment. I think they have such a difficult gig I do not envy them. All of us who had to homeschool during COVID are like, no, no, this is so (laughs) rough. Pay you more, (laughs) double your salary. But I imagine if they had a four-day work week because I feel like there's these businesses like Unilever is such a good example of, of making these leaps forward. But what about these industries that have been around for forever in a day like teaching? Have you thought about those types of industry groups? Like would they be open to big changes like this? Yeah, I think it's important when we talk about the future of work to ensure that any inequality that's currently built into our society is not further solidified by some of this progress. So I think if we're talking about the future of work, it needs to be the future of work for everyone, not just the privileged few or some people or who could afford to do it. So there's a couple of things in this. One, the model that the four-day workweek global put forward is the 180-100 model, which is 100% of the productivity for 80% of the time for 100% of the pay. So it's not about reducing your pay by 20% as well, which is interesting to point out because a lot of people look at this and think, well, I can't live my life on 20% less income. And the way that this is modelled is that you actually continue to do the same amount of work, the same amount of productivity, you just do it in four days. So I think that's important. The second thing is that the future of work is 
pretty messy and it's not going to be all of a sudden everyone's going to get there in you know at the same time and have this realization it's going to be two steps forward one step back someone's going to do something controversial it will kind of but if we look at the long arc of history and we look back at this moment in 50 years time it should be the moment where all industries so nurses doctors cleaners marketers dentists teachers everyone should be able to benefit from some of these benefits and this is one way that we're going to stop the overworked unengaged apprehensive future that we are facing at the moment is simply by working less because as soon as you start working less you fill your time up with everything else that nourishes you as a human everything else that gives you meaning in life you spend more time with your kids you spend more time with your hobbies you spend more time spending so the economy goes up because all of a sudden you're going on a weekend away you're going traveling so all of these benefits that 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 has potential all of them go towards solving some of the way that work is broken i'm just obsessed with this conversation i'm really pumped because i think it is just it's a huge problem but i'm excited hearing you talk about the research around the 4 day work week and how the the over 90% of organisations are continuing to do it because they've seen the benefits. That gives us so much hope and, as you mentioned, optimism for what can change in the way that we're working right now. So I'm, I'm really pumped about that. We're going to take a quick break and when we come back, I want to ask you a few questions about your previous book because I love your book, Killer Thinking, and I want to dig into this idea of creativity. If you want to grow in your career, I just wanted to remind you about our book, Sort Your Career Out and Make More Money. Glenn James and I have written this book to help you with any kind of career crisis, but also those things that you want, like getting a promotion, making more money, moving into a leadership role, or if it's time to quit your job. You can find our book wherever you get good books from, or you can listen on the audiobook, Sort Your Career Out and Make More Money. Now let's get back to the show. 
my first one is. I'm giggling because I was like really trying to think this all through. Creativity. Is it? This is a weirdly this is a weirdly framed question. I'm gonna stop framing it. I'm just gonna ask you. Okay. Creativity. Is it this is a multiple choice? Is it A, something you're born with? Is it B a process? Or is it C a skill? What a great question, because it's it's certainly not something that you're born with. All of us are creative, every single person, and we all use creativity all day without thinking about it. We use creativity in thinking, what are we going to cook for dinner? We use creativity in thinking, what am I going to wear today? We use creativity in thinking, uh, how, am I, how am I going to style my hair? Um, what should I do when I walk out the door? There's creative thinking is, is you know, staring us and part of our life in every every day. We come home and the tap is leaking. We have to think of creatively, how are we going to solve that? Am I going to just turn the faucet one way? Am I going to get out the wrench and do that? Am I going to call up someone to do it for me? Am I going to tell my husband he needs to do that? Am I going to leave a note? We have to kind of think creatively every single day. And sometimes they're small problems, like the tap is leaking. And sometimes they're big problems, like how am I going to solve this um, thing that's going to change the world? You know, they're the two extremes. It is a process, though. I think that is what it comes down to. It is something that can be taught and can be learnt because sometimes we we put creativity up on this pedestal as though it's it's the realm of creative gods that only certain people can think creatively and only certain people have the ability to be able to solve problems in this beautiful way. And John's such an amazing creative thinker. I could never think like that. And that's all bullshit. All that John has done differently is had the confidence to have his ideas be realised and learnt the process. And it's not some mystical, magical process. It is actually a couple of steps that anyone can learn. So I think creativity is a process. It's, it's, it's kind of taking something that exists as this ethereal concept and making it a little bit more mundane and a little bit more accessible to everyone. So to the person who's listening right now who has said to themselves or to someone else, I'm not creative... I want you to hear what Tim has said, that it is a process. It's something you can learn. And the best thing about it being a process and a skill that can be developed is that anyone can learn it. And I think creativity, if we think about, we've been talking about the future of work, if we think about the skills needed for the future, I would imagine creativity along with empathy and kindness, which I know you talk heaps about, those skills are like pure gold in a world where there's lots of uncertainty, in a world where there's AI. In what, what Do you feel like creativity is that core thing that people need to develop and build? Yeah, it's one of those skills that there are core early elements of creativity that computers and AI can assist with. So an example of that is I use AI at the moment to help me with creative ideation. I use it to kind of give me that base level like, what's the most obvious answers that I can think of to something. And then I take those answers and I riff on them and I use them as a way of real proper creative thinking that I don't think computers can do, certainly not at the moment. And that is a skill that I think all of us should be thinking of how can we upskill, how can we um, learn things that are going to be a couple of steps ahead of the computers and that I don't know if computers will ever be able to fully replicate the genius of thinking up an idea that just really fits a certain um, problem. And that brings us nicely to the problem. 
which is the first step in creativity. If creativity is a process, the very first step is really understanding what the problem is, really interrogating it. I use a line in the book of you have to be your problems therapist. You have to understand more about your problem than anyone else. You need to ask it questions. And it's actually when you start interrogating the problem that you start seeing the answers. So I am applying this process at the moment with my book writing for book three that we, we, we've just spoken about. And I've spent two years trying to understand this problem, going deep into it, traveling the world. I'm here in Finland speaking to experts saying, why is work broken? How can we solve it? And it's by really understanding the problem, every angle, people that agree with you, people that disagree with you. Some people tell me that work's not broken. Some people tell me that my question is, is wrong or the way that I'm looking at it or framing it is um, needs to be through a different light. And that is amazing. That's how I'm interrogating it from all different angles. And that's where the solutions to, to the best the best solutions come from. So you start with step one, you think about, okay, what's the problem? What's the next step? So the first step is being your problems therapist. And once you do that, we often then, okay, here's the problem I know I want to solve. And it might be big or it might be small. We often jump straight into speaking to other people about it, going and asking your colleague, hey, what do you think about this um, problem that we've got over here? What, what's some solutions? And you start throwing ideas around together. But in fact, the first thing that you should do after you know what the problem is, is just shut up. And I mean that, just sh shut up, not talk to anyone about it. And this concept of fitting your own mask first. So that, you know, on a plane, when it's, a, it's an analogy that's used in many different ways, but the idea that you meant to fit your own mask first before fitting someone else's mask. And the same thing is in creativity, where what you need to do before you go and ask somebody else is actually just think through ideas by yourself without anyone else's input, without anyone else telling you it's a shit idea, without anyone else telling you it's a great idea, just think through what is a potential solution by yourself. And you can do this in your own time. You can do it as you're driving. You can do it in an office. You can sit and have 10 minutes or two hours just thinking up ideas by yourself. And this is also a good way when you're doing creative ideation together with a group is that everyone should do it by themselves first. Think mm. of their own thoughts and then come together as a group because that's where you kind of the most interesting, most left of field ideas before groupthink kicks in and before all those other things kick in. Yeah, groupthink is such a real thing. I remember a while back I, before I, back when I was in an employee, before I started my business, we used to run, <laughs> you'll laugh at this, but we used to run these like brainstorming sessions that would go for like two full days like two full days of like group two days. Training. I'm not joking. <laughs> I am not, I'm telling the truth. Like it was called like, it was like, a oh, it would be like, so two days of like getting like groups together, they would have like problems they're trying to solve, but it would all be like, like in person. And it was just, it, it was so hard. Like, and I'm a verbal processor, so I love that stuff. So I'm like, blah, blah, blah. Like, I'll talk anyone's ear off. But like for the introverts, they're probably dying because they're like, what is this madness? Like, but what what's your take on brainstorming? Oh, man, two days. <laughs> I'm still, my mind is blown at spending two days brainstorming. I think brainstorming is one of the most overused tools 
that we have in the workplace. And most of it sucks. Like most of the brainstorm, most of the ideas, I'm sure at the end of those two days, you probably had pages and pages of whiteboards and yes. sheets and all of this kind of thing here. And I wonder how much actual good stuff came out of it or whether you felt like, wow, we've been brainstorming for two days, aren't we creative? And then you go back to your desk and forget <laughs> and- about those two days of ideas. And those post-its are still there like eight months later with no action. <laughs> totally, totally. I, I think, yeah, brainstorming is, is and I, I've spent, I, I tried to, when I wrote the book, think through how many brainstorms. I tried to like calculate at one stage. It was over a 1,000 brainstorms that I'd been in because when right, I was running Junkie Media for 15 years and as part of that we had to do brainstorms almost every day for our clients to figure out, what ways can we come up with new content ideas? What ways can we create sponsored content? How can we do events? How can we do whatever competitions, whatever it was? And so almost every day an, an email would appear in an inbox from someone and say, two o'clock, come to the boardroom. Today we're talking about Coca-Cola and we need to figure out how to solve their problem with reaching young people. And everyone would sit around a room and someone would say, okay, Coca-Cola wants to reach teenagers. How are we going to do that? And someone says, why don't we put on a pop concert? Someone says, yeah, great idea. Okay, pop concert. Okay, who's going to be at the pop concert? Justin Bieber. Great, Justin Bieber. Okay. And then you've, you know, half an hour's gone and you've got this shit idea. Um, <laughs> every, the extroverts have spoken over the top of the introverts. Um, three people in the room wondering what the hell they're doing there. <laughs> You leave, someone writes it up in a terrible way. <laughs> Shelley, is this, is this too relatable to you? <laughs> it's too, it's too real. I'm getting, I'm, <laughs> I've got, I've got tears. <laughs> it's so real. Yeah. It's the it, three people that are like, why am I even here? <laughs> yeah. And then the three loud ones in the room who are yelling over the top of each other, excited by the idea. Generally, the person who came up with the idea thinks it's the best idea in the world. And the three people in, in the room are wondering, why aren't I doing my own work right now? I'm so sick of this. I just want to get back to sitting at my desk and you extroverts are annoying me. So there's so many reasons why brainstorming sucks. It's a really, really shit model. And it's 80 years old. It was designed in a workplace by Alex Osborne 80 years ago, and it served us well. He's done a good job, but workplaces have changed. Zoom and teams and hybrid work and all of that has changed and we're still using some of those same tools and wondering why we're getting shitter and shitter results so there's a bunch of ways that you can solve this because i know that question is coming next shelly of <laughs> how do you how do you solve this and it's a great question that i've anticipated you asking <laughs> so how do we tell us <laughs> yes um you just have to re jig and reapproach how you do it. So creative ideation is, is wonderful. Getting people together is wonderful. But there's a couple of things you should do beforehand. The first one is, and sometimes, you know, in an ideal world, you've got lots of time and everyone has time to think creatively before you come to a meeting. And sometimes you don't. Sometimes you do have to say, guys, it's two o'clock, meet in the boardroom. We've got an hour. We need to try and solve this. And if you do do that, then you there is a process that you should follow. First part is dedicating a bunch of time to the problem. I recommend about one third of the time you have discussing the problem. So really ask questions, interrogate it, be its therapist, really spend time doing that because in discussing the problem, you start thinking of the answers. So do not, don't come to the answer, but it just starts putting ideas in, in your head. 
The next thing you do is every, everyone shut up and you then do five minutes, three minutes, 10 minutes, however long you have of solo in peace ideation. So everyone in the room has five minutes and they, you have post-it notes, you have your iPhone, you have Slack, you, whatever you have, maybe not Slack because it's, um, this shouldn't be public at this stage, but you have a, a notepad and you just spend five minutes by yourself thinking through what some salute, potential solutions to this are. No one talks. And I think that's one of the most interesting parts about coming into a creative ideation session. And instead of everyone just going back and forward and, you know, storming your brains, you just shut up for five minutes and everyone thinks of their ideas. Then the next part you do is that you start sharing those ideas. And one of the real simple tricks that I have in the book, which is a way of stopping extroverts from dominating, stopping a thing called hippos from dominating. Um, hippo is stands for the highest paid person's opinion. And often that is the boss that's in the room. Sometimes it's the boss that's not in the room who's dominating this. And so a really simple technique to stop hippos and stop extroverts from dominating is that you go around the room by the order of whose birthday it is next and you start uh, sharing your ideas in that order. Really simple. And everyone then has a chance to um, say what they do. So you've you've spent time thinking through what the problem is, you do it individually, you share the ideas, and then you start doing things like plussing. And plussing is a term that uh, Walt Disney came up with, which is about how you add to someone else's ideas and you do this in a way that should be psychologically safe for people. So it should be adding in on in like positive language, um, not putting someone down, you know, the whole concept that there's no idea, no such thing as bad ideas, kind of taking that and using open language to really plus each other's ideas. And then you start having a gazillion ideas and that's where the creativity happens. But you've built this foundation, which is everyone's had a say. You've got some really interesting ideas because Jenny from accounts who's in the corner, who's in the meeting, who normally doesn't speak, she has these wonderful ideas that are quite left of centre because she might think slightly differently to John from accounts because, sorry, Jenny from accounts and John from marketing. They think quite differently because of how they approach and how their brains work and how they're being conditioned. Yet the two of them might have these really amazing ideas that once you start plussing it and you start building it on top of each other, you then start creating real amazing creativity. Uh, there's so much that I love in that, like just so much. The first thing that I love is the solo time. I think when we run meetings, we get awkward about having solo thinking time. Like we think meetings have to just be nonstop talking, but they don't. And I think some of the best meetings I've been in have been super structured like that where, okay, we have this problem. We're going to now use this time to work on it in the meeting. Like, and we're going to sit in silence and just actually creating space for people in a meeting to do the solo thinking and get their thoughts together because I think most people need space to think. Like they need that time unless they're like the real hardcore verbal processes where they like to get their ideas out by talking. But I, I don't know, I, lo- I just love that. I think we need to create space and at most meetings would benefit from having solo thinking time as part, just part and parcel, even if it's not a creative ideation meeting. And to add on, build on that, I'm going to plus your idea. The idea, we are so distracted every day. We've got our emails open, there's emails coming through. Hopefully we have notifications turned off on our phone and notifications turned off on the screen, but 
there's so many things, a thousand tabs that we're looking at on our screen, in our minds, even trying to get somebody, I want you to concentrate for five minutes on this one thing here is harder to do than it sounds. And therefore in a meeting, you get everyone in there, they're not on their phone, they're in silence, you're forcing them. Here's the question that we're trying to answer. I just want you to spend five minutes time thinking about that. If you have 10 people in the room and everyone spends five minutes, that's 50 minutes of undivided attention of collective thinking about an issue. And name the last time when you had 50 minutes of completely undivided attention thinking about an issue. Like it's, it's, I, I doubt that most listeners could name time. And I think it just shows even the plus, the plusing stuff is so good. Like, because I think the thing that kills creativity faster than anything is blocking. It's like when we cut down ideas, but I love that concept. And it's the optimism in plusing that I love. Like, how do you add or bring alternatives, but you're not blocking someone's idea or cutting it down? And I think that is such a key part of creative thinking and building that healthy creative process is that we don't have people in the group just railroading someone's out their idea. Yeah, yeah. And and Google did a bunch of research in this space around what a positive workplace looks like that has creativity at its, at its core. And the key thing that they found was psychological safety. So it needs to be psychologically safe for you to bring up ideas without thinking you're going to get laughed at, without thinking someone's going to say, uh, Tim, that idea is never going to work without your ego being bruised. So it's not about just being blindly positive and saying, amazing, Shelley, your ideas are so good. It's about saying, Shelley, and genuinely thinking, Shelley, that idea that you had before around how to fix the leaky faucet, that's really interesting because it got me thinking about what else is leaking in our house. And there's actually 10 other things that are leaking. So why don't we get a plumber to come in and fix all 10 things at once? And, you know, so you're, you're kind of like taking someone's ideas and you're adding onto it and you're plussing. And as soon as someone feels seen, feels heard, feels valued in a room, all of a sudden, Shelley, you're going to think, oh, wow, my idea about how to fix the leaky faucet has been heard. Therefore, there's this other idea that I have around why don't we do this other thing over here and you feel psychologically safe to bring that up. And then someone else is going to riff on that and all of a sudden Jenny from Accounts is thinking through and she has the best idea in the world because she's been listening and she has been heard and she's also, you know, in, in a way kind of, I'm trying to think of a better term for this, but the term that comes to me is broken the seal um, in a meeting, which is sometimes when you sit in a meeting and if you haven't spoken and half an hour has passed and you think, oh, my God, I haven't spoken, I don't know how to speak, I'm slightly introverted, I'm never going to speak in this meeting, and you start thinking, you know, thoughts up inside your head, if you can break the seal at the start of a meeting and make sure that everyone is heard, everyone's voice box gets used, everyone gets comfortable talking in, in front of a group of people they might not feel comfortable in speaking about, that does huge things for making everyone feel comfortable and that's where the best ideas come from. I love that, those moments. You can see them actually happen in meetings where that person that doesn't necessarily always speak up, they contribute and it's like the light bulb moment, watershed in that team where we go, okay, cool. This is A, a really safe environment and we're showing that we can hear from everyone. I think that's where we have that safety when we can hear from every team member, not just the highest paid person in the room. We don't defer just to that person who's the boss. And that takes a lot of self-control from the boss as well to sit back 
instead of like jumping into the solutions, because I know a lot of leaders do that. They jump straight to, oh, I've got ideas, we can solve it and solve it as quickly as possible. But I think what you're saying is how do we make sure we hear every voice, every perspective, because we get more creative ideas that way. hundred percent. And Shelley, I remember in my early 20s, sitting in meetings, feeling so out of my depth, feeling like I had nothing to offer, feeling like this was a group of experienced people. And you'd go through some meetings and you would spend the entire meeting inside your own head, trying to think of what can I add to this? How can I say something? Oh my God, the meeting's about to finish. I haven't said anything It's a real common feeling uh, for people at all different stages of their career. And I remember going through that and feeling that way. And one of the things that really helped me were even, you know, simple icebreakers that used to happen in meetings. I used to love when I went into a meeting and there was an icebreaker that encouraged everyone to speak at the start of a meeting because you just felt seen. And even if I wasn't going to have the confidence to be able to talk in that meeting, I still would feel like I could say my two truths and one lie or I could say what animal I would be if I was going to be an animal or whatever it was that was going to be, you know, an icebreaker that was used, you know, when I was in my early 20s in advertising agencies, I still felt that at least I was heard and at least I kind of broke the seal in that meeting and that was that made a big difference to me. Big fan of icebreakers here too, so I'm glad we've got, got that in common. I would love to close out this episode with one kind of final rapid fire question for you. Again, a gear shift to something a little different, but I'd love to know just to kind of close out. I know everyone's going to want to get in contact with you. I'm going to ask you where they can find you in a sec. What? You've had a massive career. You've you've done so much at Junkie Media and you're on to your third book. I'd love to know what is your biggest career learning or fail that you've kind of learned from? Like what would you say is your biggest learning that you've had? A great question because I have learned so, so much over my career. I consider myself being in the halfway point of my working life. That's how I like to think of things. I consider myself to be kind of halfway through and that's just how I like to think about life. There's been so many. I think my biggest one which is something that just keeps coming back in many, many different ways, is this understanding that bigger is not always better. Mm. And it's something that in my early years of my career, I started off putting on events in my kind of early you know, 20s because I wanted to go out with my friends and there weren't enough events to go out. And I started putting on events and I started going bigger and bigger and bigger. And it was like 200 people, then 500 people. And I was like, let me do the first dance party at um, the Sydney Entertainment Centre with 5,000 people. And it just got bigger and bigger and bigger until all of a sudden it was too big for me. I lost $80,000 in one night when I was 22 or 23 years old. And I realised that bigger is not always better. And then when I started the business that I co-founded and started in 2006 with some friends and it kind of grew into junkie media that we had 60 staff or 70 staff by the end when we sold it, I realized that just growing bigger for bigger's sake, more revenue, more staff was not the answer. And you can be just as satisfying and have just as uh, fulfilled and content life 
when it's just myself or when I have one staff or two staff or three staff. And I really think about that now as I'm entering this new phase and I build a new world around me and what I love doing. And in the past, my answer was always, I want this to be as big as possible. I want as many staff. I want as much revenue as possible. And I now don't think that bigger is the answer. I think satisfaction and fulfillment and happiness and career progression and being meaningful for other people and passing on some of my learnings, that to me is way more important than how much revenue I make or how much money I bring in or how many staff I have. So that lesson of bigger is not always better and knowing what my enough is, what I'm happy with, has been my biggest learning so far. Wow, what a beautiful way to round this whole conversation out. And Tim, I just love that it's such a nice toe and tail to think about contentment up front where we talked about this idea of happiness and what that looks like and then hearing you share your own career learnings of bigger is not always better and how do we find out what enough is for us and what happiness looks like for us personally not what it looks like for the person next to us or the or what our parents think or all those other kind of voices that we tend to defer to I just want to say thank you so much. I have loved every minute of this conversation and just getting the time with you uh, is just so wonderful. Where can people find out more about you and your work? Thanks, Shelley. I've really enjoyed it as well. It's been lots of fun. And the easiest way is I have a website, which is timduggan.com.au. That's D-U-G-G-A-N.com.au. And it's got all details of my books there, as well as a newsletter that I send out once a month called Outlet which stands for one useful thing literally every time. And it is a monthly email that I send out with an interesting tool. I speak to some experts. Sometimes it's things I've done in my own career. And that's one of my great joys at the moment is curating and crafting and sending this email out to thousands of people every month. So that's probably the best way of getting in contact with me. Amazing. Well, we'll put all the links in the show notes so you can get the book and subscribe to Outlet because it is very useful. I can attest to that. Tim, thanks so much for hanging out. And for everyone listening, I just want you to share this with someone who needs to listen to this episode. I know there's going to be stacks of people who who want to hear this message from Tim. And if you enjoy the show, give us a five-star rating and review. Thanks heaps. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. We love learning how to do all things well, which is why we have a bunch of different podcasts on a variety of topics. So go and check out My Millennial Investor, My Millennial Money Professional, My Millennial Property, My Millennial Money, My Millennial Daily, and Retire Right. Find these wherever you get your podcasts. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.